Um, let's get to our text today. It comes from Ezra. We're going to continue our series in Ezra. And our text today comes from Ezra 8, verses 1 to 20. So let's read the Word of God together. The Word of God reads, These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up from me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes, of the descendants, descendants of Phineas, Gershom, of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel, of the descendants of David, Hattush, of the descendants of Shechaniah, of the descendants of Parosh, Zechariah, and with him, and with them were registered 150 men. Of the descendants of Pahath Moab, Elihonai, son of, son of Zerariah, and with him 200 men. Of the descendants of Zatu, Shechaniah, son of Jahaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the descendants of Adon, Ebed, son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the descendants of Elam, Jeshiah, son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the descendants of Shephathiah, Zebediah, son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the descendants of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the descendants of Bani, Shalomith, son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the descendants of Bebai, Zechariah, son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the descendants of Asgad, Johanan, son of Hakatan, with him, and with him 100 men, 110 men, and the descendants of Adonikam, the last ones, whose names were Elephelet, Jewel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men, of the descendants of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joyarib, and Elnathan, a lot of, lot of Nathans, a lot of Elnathans, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to do to go to Ido the leader of Casaphia. And I told them to what to say to Ido and his fellow Levites, uh, the temple servants in Casaphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God, because the gracious hand of our God was on us. They brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers in all, 18 in all. And Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for lists. We thank you for all these names that we don't know nor can pronounce. And But most of all, we thank you for the truth that you share with us 2,000, 3,000 years later in light of these lists and these names. Because, Lord, we know that your truth and the awesome truth of Jesus Christ is really preached through all these. And so we celebrate you. We love you. And, God, we ask that your spirit would speak to us as we unravel and unlock your word for our people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um. I'd like to start my message with a question, and the question I want to ask you is this. Have you ever not wanted to do something that you know, that you knew you had to do? Right? Have you ever not wanted to do something that you knew you had to do? 
Um, when we were potty training our two boys, uh, I think the worst word in the English, or not even the English, the worst word that we ever wanted to hear was when one of our kids would say the word, you know, right? which means like, uh, like poo in baby Korean, okay? And whenever we hear that, we'd like run, and then we'd have to like pick up our kid and then put him on the, the big, you know, the big person's toilet, you know, before he goes or before you know, any of our children have an accident or anything like that. And so that was stressful. But if there was a word that we hated even more than the first one, it's when one of our kids on the toilet would yell, finished. And then I would look at my wife and we'd have this like staring fight as to who would have to wipe our kid. And no, none of us, you know, wanted to do it. Look, you know, I know they're my kids. You know, I love them to the moon and back. But the last thing I want to do ever is, you know, wipe their butts after they, you know, do their business. You know, I'm sure you guys have something like that in your life, right? Have you guys, do you guys, is there something in your life that you know you have to do, but you totally don't want to do? And of course there is. We all have something like that, whether it's either at work, maybe it's part of your family, a family responsibility. Maybe, you know, it's either, at, maybe even at church, right? Oh, are you serious, Eddie? Are there, are there people like that? Are there people that don't want to go to church and serve and help people meet Jesus? Are there people, other Christians that actually want to stay home on a Sunday instead of coming here? And the answer is, of course, of course there are, right? And um, have you guys ever felt like that? Not wanting to go to church? You know, I don't know if you have or not, but if you have, then you can relate completely with the people in our passage today. You know, Ezra, Ezra 8, or the beginning of Ezra 8, is the story of priests. Priests who don't want to serve as priests anymore. And I totally can get that one, you know, even though I'm a pastor, and even though I love pastoring you guys, and even though I love FLM, there are just some times where I just don't want to come to church, and I don't want to serve anymore. I don't want to play by, like, full gospel's rules. I don't want to, like, you know, do ministry, right? There are just times like that. I'm sure, you know, maybe some of you felt like that. But these priests in our passage today, they were exactly like that, and I'll explain why in a little bit. And so when the call was made, there was a call that was made for all who wanted to go back to Jerusalem and serve in the temple to put their hand up. Guess who didn't put their hand up? The priests. And they just didn't want to go. So they chose to stay in Babylon and rebel against their calling. And the thing is, what you have to realize is that stories like this are nothing new. You know, the Old Testament is filled with Israelites and Jews who constantly rebelled against God or who rebelled against their calling. You know, even if we go back to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden by eating the forbidden fruit. You know, we look at like um, uh, Miriam and Aaron. They rebelled against Moses and the will of God. You know, the sons of Abraham rebelled against God inside the temple by using unauthorized fire. You know, the Old Testament is filled with stories of rebellion. And the more you read the Old Testament, sometimes the more surprised you get as to how much rebellion really is uh, really goes on, especially when like really great holy men are guilty of that rebellion. But what shines even more when you read your Old Testament is how amazing and how great the mercy of God is towards rebellious people. 
all throughout Scripture. You know, and God's mercy towards the rebellious is always greater than their rebellion. God's mercy is always greater than our sin. And that is the point of our passage today. You know, um, it, today's story is not just a story of priests not wanting to be priests and to serve God. It's really the story of God who is so ready to extend his hand of mercy to all those who are living in rebellion. Not just to forgive them, but to restore them and to use them powerfully for his glory. That's exactly what our whole story is about. It's a story about God. And so God's mercy is always greater than our sin and our rebellion. And there's two points that I want to make today as a result of that. Um, the first has to do with how we access his mercy. And the second has to do with whom we access that mercy from. And the first point is this. We access God's mercy through worship, right? You know, last time we, we met and we, we preached through Ezra, we were in Ezra 7. And in Ezra 7 was like a new chapter of the book of Ezra where there's a new wave of uh, people moving from Babylon to Jerusalem, right? The temple has just been built. Now it's time to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So Ezra leads this new group of people back to Jerusalem to build the walls and to build the city once again. And, and the command is very simple. Whoever wants to go can go. Whoever wants to come can come. And so at the beginning of Ezra 8 here, we see this list of people who are going back to Jerusalem, these lists of people who volunteered to go back to Jerusalem and to worship in this newly built temple. And looking at the list, I know all of us love lists, you know, it can get really confusing. It's hard for me to even read the names on this list. And a lot of times we tune out whenever we encounter lists like this. But believe it or not, just like in most other lists, there's intention behind the list. There's intention behind the order of these lists. And here we go. The first two lists that we see, the first two lines of names are actually descendants of the sons of Aaron, the priestly line. The next list or the next, the third line actually comes from the line of David. Now, every theologian that I've read on this passage said that was very intentional for Ezra to write it in this exact same way, right? It was very intentional for Ezra to write it like this because what he wanted to do in those first two lines is that he wanted to highlight the importance and the centrality and the priority of proper worship, the proper worship of God that is to take place, not only in Jerusalem, but within our lives. And then he quickly follows that up. So that's why he puts the descendants of the priests first. And then he quickly follows that up with, really interestingly, the line of David. Now, why would he write the line of David there? Simply because, simple because if you guys know the line of David, uh, Jesus Christ came from the line of David. So the, it, the line of David actually points to the Messiah, which is really Amazing. So the movement here that Ezra is making is that proper worship points to the Messiah. Proper worship points to true restoration in God. And that's the movement that Ezra, Ezra is making really here, and which is absolutely amazing. So Ezra is highlighting and, and, and emphasizing the importance of the prop, personal proper worship of God, the proper worship of God as us as a worshiping community, which leads us to Christ, which leads us to Christ, which then leads us to perfect rest 
restoration. Before I go on, I just want to make a side note here. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it, that Ezra would put the line of David right here, that he actually references the future Messiah right here. And what's amazing about that is not only that he mentions the descendants or the future, or what do you call it, the, the, the descendants or the ancestry of Jesus Christ, but do you know how many lines there are remaining in this list? There are 12. There are, and those 12 lines that remain represent the 12 tribes of Israel that God wants to restore. It's absolutely amazing, this list. What is that all saying? What it's all saying is this. All that once was before the Babylonian exile, God is now restoring back fully. Right, God is at work restoring his people back to him. And what does he want their priority to be? Worship. Right? Encountering his mercy begins with the proper worship of God, which all points to Christ and which points all of us to Christ, the Messiah, so that we can all be fully restored in him. Why? so that we can once again find our identity, find our purpose as God's people once again. Isn't that amazing? This is all in a list. And this is what Ezra is writing here. It's absolutely amazing. But it all begins with worship. You know, um, if you guys know me and my family, we love vacationing in Hawaii every single year. You know, sometimes if we're lucky enough, we get to go twice a year. Ever since I started at FLM, we've never been, obviously, because of the pandemic. But I don't know what it is about that place. We just find, like, our center. We just find, like, we get we feel fully restored. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something in the water and the beaches or in the food. What, you know, but something about that place. We've been to many different places. But there's something magical about that place that restores us as a family. We get our joy back. We get our life back. It's absolutely wonderful. You know, so I remember there was one time that we were really struggling a few years back in ministry. There were a lot of issues with our extended family. There were a lot of difficulties that were going on. And so we were really looking forward to this particular trip to Hawaii that we were on. And while we were there, it was absolutely amazing. We went to all our favorite beaches. We ate all of our favorite food. It was, you know, we were so restful. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful and it was absolutely great. But after I got back, I remember uh, something was still just not right. Something was still a little bit off. And um, I don't know what it was, but I just didn't want to re-engage in normal life again. You know, I didn't even want my kids to go back to school. I don't know, something was totally off. And so um, what I realized what was that was totally off was very, very simple. What was off was my personal worship of God, you know, uh, yes, I read my Bible while I was in Hawaii, you know, but, but not that much. Yes, I prayed while I was there. Yes, we tried to live holy, but um, there was still something off. What I realized when I got back was that I had not been spending any time really worshiping God at all, you know. And what I realized when I got back was that the few months previous to even us going, I was not spending time worshiping God at all. And the thing is, I didn't realize that. The way I realized it was through uh, chatting with one of my old disciples, someone I used to disciple. You know, he, I remember he had just got a job and he was telling me, Eddie, I'm so excited to work. And these are, these are my priorities. I'm going to make God, and I'm gonna, uh, these, are, these are my priorities every single day. And he listed three things and I never got past the first one because the first one says, every single morning when I wake up, I'm going to spend time personally worshiping with Jesus. And I read that and that's when I knew 
that I had not done that in a very, very long time, you know? And so I picked up my guitar and I just started singing songs, you know, not to practice, but just to worship. I picked up my Bible, not to learn anything new, but just to enjoy the Jesus that I was reading. I started to pray, but not to intercede for anybody, but simply just to talk to God, you know? And then the moment I started truly exchanging hearts with Christ, things started to change, right? It wasn't instantaneous, but slowly but surely, my confidence in Christ came back. My joy in Christ came back. I was like, you know, I knew that he was within me and that he was real and he was worthy of my life. And that was really what was missing so powerfully. And so that excited me to get back to who I truly needed to be as a husband, you know, as a father, as a son to my parents, and even as a pastor in ministry. Personal worship is the game changer, you know. But what became obvious to me, and this is what I learned, the lesson that I learned from that, was that, you know, I had not been living my whole life as a worship to God. I was doing the work of God. I was doing it every single day. I was doing it as faithfully as I could. I was working really, really hard. But even though I was actually working for God, this is the way I'm going to say it, I was actually living in rebellion because I was actually doing all that stuff for myself. Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't kind of matter what you do. You can actually just do all that stuff for yourself. Instead of actually doing things for God, doing things as a worship to God, with God in mind, with his glory, with his joy in mind, I just did the work the best I could to make myself feel good about myself. You know, this kind of stuff, right? And so um, I was actually living in rebellion instead of living out the life that I was called and saved to live out, which is for him and for his pleasure, you know, and for his glory. But even in my mer or even in my rebellion, what I discovered was his mercy was greater. Right? It was his mercy that was throwing people my way, you know, to remind me of what my life is to be about. It was his mercy that was wooing me back to him, giving me opportunities to once again focus my heart and my life upon him alone. He was already at work in me. And the moment that my heart finally, you know, realized that and was awakened to him, I found him waiting, waiting to embrace me and to love me so that he could forgive me and restore me to serve him once again. You know, worship points us to Jesus. And that's absolutely necessary every single day, not just for these Jews, but for all of God's people. Why? Because it grounds us in Jesus Christ. It restores us to Christ. It strengthens us for Christ, and it empowers us to live the life that Christ saved for us to live. How? How does that all work? Simple. Because spending time worshiping Jesus transforms us, right? For those who are close with God these days, my guess is that you're spending some really good time, not just with God, but probably worshiping God. So continue Keep on going. You know, make this year a year of true worship. That's awesome.
But for those who might be far from God as you start out this year, worship might seem like the last thing that you really want to do. Why? Because when you're far from God, worship is the last thing that you really want to do. We don't want to do that. And the thing is, just by me telling you to do it, it's not real because you know that if you try to worship when you don't want to, when you try to force the worship issue, it might seem fake. It feels insincere. And there's a part of us that's like, man, maybe my heart needs to change first before I start worshiping or singing or praying, right? Doesn't my heart need to change first? And we think stuff like that because maybe someone taught us. But the reality is that's where spiritual discipline really comes into play. Or maybe just even common sense. And this is what I'm talking about. If our hearts are far from God, if our hearts are distant, right? But we actually want to be intimate with God, which I know all of us want to be, then here's the question. If you continue on the current trajectory and path you're on right now, will you get closer to God? Or will you just end up being farther away from God? And my guess is it's going to be farther. So if your current trajectory and direction is not going closer to God, then don't you need to go the opposite direction, which is what? Worship. Right? Unnatural, maybe. But that's the answer. Right? And that's what we need to do. We need to go the opposite way. Our point today is this. As you move in that direction, what you're going to realize and what these priests realized is that God was already working within your life, wooing you back to him. Maybe this message is God speaking to you to come back to him, to move back in his direction. Because what he wants to do is not judge you or condemn you, but to love you and forgive you and to restore you back to be his. His mercy is always greater than our rebellion. And that begins when we take steps of worship first and foremost. Right? God wants us to spend our days in worship so that we'll always find ourselves grounded in Christ and in his mercy. You know what happens with people who are grounded in his mercy? Those are the people that end up loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's the goal, right? So let's spend time not just with God, but worshiping God. And let's allow his mercy to lead us back to his love, his forgiveness, his restoration, which leads us to our second point, and that's this. God's mercy is found in Jesus Christ alone. God's mercy is found in Jesus Christ alone. Let's read verse 15 again. It said this, it said, I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. And so, you know, the story once again to remind you is that King Artaxerxes says that anybody who wants to go back to Jerusalem, Ezra, you take them and you go rebuild those walls. And so the invitation was given to everyone. Anyone who wanted to go freely, they were allowed to go. So Ezra gathers all the volunteers down near the river and he numbers them. And he discovers as he's numbering them that none of the priests were there, right? None of the priests wanted to go back to Jerusalem. And that's shocking because a priest's job is to serve at the temple, you know, to, to serve with the worship of God in the temple of God. And the thing is, Jerusalem, they just built a brand new temple. And so you would think that that's where these priests would want to be. But no, none of them wanted to go. None of them rocked up, right? And so... Why is that? That's the question. 
Why did none of these priests want to go back to the temple that was freshly, newly built in Jerusalem? And the answer is very simple. What were these priests doing in Babylon? You know, were they serving at a temple in Babylon? No, they weren't. You know, were there any like temple duties that they were called to perform on a regular basis in Babylon? No, they weren't. You know, there wasn't. So the question is, what were they doing in Babylon? for like the past 50 years? And the answer is, they were living a regular life. You know, they were working, making money, raising babies, right, setting up house. This is what they were doing. They were living a normal, non-priestly life for themselves, and they loved it. It's That's it, right? They loved living these lives. And so when the opportunity came back for them to go back to Jerusalem so they could now serve a temple, and so they can now serve all the Israelites to, for the worship of God in the temple, it just wasn't attractive. They'd rather just live their own life, make money, raise kids. They're fully established there in Babylon. And they just didn't want to go back. It didn't compare right, to having this freedom to live your own life, to having this freedom to do whatever you wanted to do, you know, with your own life. Now, in our day and age, it might be difficult for us to put such a harsh label upon them, but that is rebellion against God, okay? Rebellion is simply not doing what you're called to do, not being who God saved you to be. You don't have to be negatively emotional towards God to be rebellious. You don't. Rebellion is simply choosing yourself over God, which is what these guys were doing. So what's what's obvious when we read this passage is that these Levite priests, they either forgot who they were called to be, they or they just were denying who they were called to be, or they just simply didn't want to be who God called them to be. Regardless, um, they chose themselves over God. And when the opportunity came for them to actually serve God with their lives, they said no. And they chose to rebel against their calling and their identity as a people of God. They rebelled. And so, but wow, but here, here we go. But this is the story of Ezra 8, verses 1 to 20. But while they were absolutely, perfectly satisfied, maybe, living out their comfortable, non-priestly lifestyles, what did they discover, right? They discovered that even though they were deeply seated in the lounge chair of rebellion, God's mercy and his merciful hand was being extended to them once again. He was calling them out of their selfishness. He was calling them out of their own sense of identity. He was calling them not to judge them or to condemn them, but to love them, to forgive them so he could restore them, not so they could just live ordinary worldly lives, but so they could do great, eternal, mighty things for his glory. That's what they discovered. They were rebellious. But what they discover here in this passage is that God's mercy was so much greater. And for those that actually came to him in repentance, what did they find? What did they discover? They found his hope, his forgiveness, and his full restoration, which is the story of Ezra chapter 8. You know, today's message really, I think, is a message for those who live in the Western world today. Because there, I think there are so many Christians in this world who struggle with the exact same struggles that these priests struggle with in our past today. Am I right? I mean, there are so many other 
attractive non-eternal opportunities that are out there and they're you know and they're awesome aren't they they're all out there in the world even serving the church sometimes is unattractive you know especially for those who grew up in the church who are disappointed by the church who might have been hurt by the church you know and out there you know it just seems like there's a sense of freedom that we have that we can just do whatever we want to do establish our own identity live however we wish right and that's, how, that's what it feels like out there. We have that kind of freedom. And even though we know God is good, and even though we know his ways are great and they're awesome and pure and holy, there's a part of us sometimes that's convinced that, hey, I think I can make better decisions for my life than God. Right? But for anyone who currently thinks that way, that might, just seem, that might be an indication that either you've never really met Jesus or it's been a really long time since you have. Because anyone who knows Jesus and who has met Jesus knows that there is no one that can compare to Jesus, right? And anyone who knows Jesus and has met Jesus knows that there is no life greater than living for Jesus. Sure, you'll have your moments where other things are more attractive. But in your heart, you'll know there's nothing that can compare His wisdom and his ways are so much wiser than ours, right? And I know that we hate hate attaching negative vocabulary to, to behavior, right? It's just not very kosher in 2022. But those examples that I gave before, just about one or two minutes ago, those are all examples of biblical rebellion, as good as they might sound and as true as they might sound. Those are all examples of biblical rebellion. You know, you don't have to hate God. You don't have to be negatively emotional towards God to be rebellious. You just have to choose yourself, right? But the beauty of Ezra 8 is that even when God finds the most rebellious sinners in his camp, even when God finds the most rebellious sinners in his church, before any kind of judgment, what does he do? He extends his hand of mercy to us, right? And that mercy was extended to us 2,000 years ago on a cross, right? You see, even before we knew that we needed God and that we needed to be forgiven, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price of all of our rebellion completely 2,000 years ago upon the cross. And he not only died for, to forgive us of all of our sins, but he died to restore us so that we would no longer continue to live for ourselves, but we would now live for him, right, in his wisdom. And for those who choose to repent from their rebellion and to put their faith in what Jesus Christ did for them, what you'll discover is that God has been working in your life This whole time. Once again, maybe this message is him speaking to you. Him wooing you back towards him. Him reminding you of what's really true. So that you could find yourself in Jesus Christ once again. Because why? Because he wants wants you to know true love. He wants you to know that you're forgiven in Christ. He wants you to truly be restored so that you can live for his glory and be used powerfully, eternally for his glory, which is what all of us were created for and which is why Jesus Christ saved us. That's exactly what these Levites discovered in our passage today. What I love most about this passage 
is you got to do a little math, but if you, you know, a little thing here, if you just, you know, study it a little bit, it took less than seven days from the moment that Ezra discovered that these priests didn't rock up at the river for all these Levites to show up at the river, you know, and that's pretty psycho. So what, what happens is he sends his delegate to go basically rebuke the Levites and tell them to come. And so these Levites, they quit their jobs, pack up everything, and they move their whole lives within seven days, which is absolutely radical. That's decisive, right? That's a major, major life move. After 50 years of doing the same thing, you just don't pack up and move cities, countries, right? And especially you don't do that if you're just motivated by guilt. People think, oh, they must do that because they felt guilty, you don't do stuff like that when you're when you feel guilty, right? You don't move your whole life and change your whole life and move to a different country just because you feel guilty. You, people don't do that. But you know what type of people do stuff like this? People who are motivated by something greater. You see, when the rebuke came to them, they were once again awakened to God's mercy and they realized, oh my God, God is on the other side. The opportunity to serve God, to build his kingdom, and to make him great is on that side, and we get to be a part of it. So guess what? They were awakened, and they packed all their stuff up and moved to a greater life. And what we're going to read in the next passage in, in Ezra 8 is that they were rewarded for that faith. You know, if there's anything that I wish I could make people realize, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, is that... You know, repentance of all of our sins, putting our faith in Jesus Christ, isn't really so much a goodbye to our old life and our old lifestyle. It is, though. It completely is. Right? It really is. But more than saying goodbye to this old life or this old lifestyle, it really is this, um, more significantly, more excitingly, it's this entrance. It's this launch into a life that is absolutely eternally significant where we get to walk alongside the God of the universe filled with pure love, pure joy. You know what I'm saying? Pure holiness, goodness in all of its greatestness. That's that word, greatness, right? That's what it is. And I wish people would see that. And I wish people would see Christ in that way. And it's that hope, that love, that forgiveness, that mercy, that grace, that Jesus whom we put our faith in, when we keep our eyes focused upon him, that's what's going to make us live holy. That's what allows us to move mountains, transform nations, and be used to live an amazing, eternal, priestly life that we were all called and saved to live, right? And that's all possible, not only because Jesus Christ raised, rose from the dead, but because he's, un, he's alive in each one of us today. And because he is, he invites us to turn to him in every moment so that we could receive his mercy in every moment, and so that he could be the king of every moment in our lives, every day. You know, today's message is not a message just for those who might be living in sin, but it's also for those that might just simply be missing out, right? God is extending his hand of mercy to all of us today. And my plea is that you'll just take it. You'll take his hand. You'll repent for living for yourself. You'll put your faith in Jesus Christ and you'll put your trust and your hope 
in Christ. And then you'll choose to live for him. But maybe even more importantly, you'll choose to live with him starting today. His mercy is always greater than our sins. Let's pray. God's mercy is always greater than your sins. God's mercy is always greater than your sins. God's mercy is always greater than your sins. If you need to come and enjoy his mercy once again today, come. If you've been far from God, come. Come close to him today and he'll come close to you. Surrender control over your life. Live according to his ways. Once again, worship him. Put your faith in Christ. And let's start again. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day. He is extending his hand of mercy to you. Trust that he died for your sins. Surrender your rebellious ways and live in his ways so that you can be used for his glory. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. God's mercy is greater than your sin. Let's repent. Let's enjoy him. And let's give ourselves to be used to build his kingdom once again. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you forgive us. We ask that you forgive us for our arrogance and our rebelliousness. We always think we know better. We always wake up every morning wanting to do what we want to do. Father, a lot of times you're our second or third. Sometimes you're even like our fifth or tenth thought. And Father, we spend all of us, so, so much, so many of our days living however we wish, when there is this fountain of pure love and joy and beauty that we could be enjoying in in Jesus. God, I pray that you move us to be a people that is constantly bathed in your mercy, 
people who make worship our priority, people who make you and your glory our pleasure. Teach us how to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and being, God. And always allow that worship to point us to Jesus, where we can be fully restored in you and discover who we truly are and we're made to be all over again every single day so that every day can be filled with not just mercy, but hope. Not just to live for you and for your glory, but so that this world can know true hope through us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, whose mercy never ends. We thank you for your love that never changes. And we thank you that your mercy is always greater than any sin we can throw your way. We praise you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.